I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, listeners, just wanted to wish you a happy holiday season. I hope it's filled with joy, laughter, family, friends, and great music. Speaking of which, we have a holiday-themed musical treat for you at the end of this episode, so stick around. You're not going to want to miss it. I also want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc. Go to slippeddisc.com for the latest news in classical music now. Composer, author, lecturer, and performer Bruce Adolph is a multifaceted artist who seamlessly incorporates matters of the heart and mind into all of his works. He's known by millions of listeners for his ingenious piano puzzlers on his longtime radio show, and his concert works are performed worldwide by the likes of Itzhak Perlman and Yo-Yo Ma. With such a busy and creative life, you'd never guess that his secret to getting it all done is to daydream. You do need to get to work, but your daydreaming also matters. Imagine a school where teachers encourage students to daydream to recall their visions and then get to work. We might see a graduating class with an unusual percentage of poets, novelists, scientists, and composers. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. It's great to see you. It's great to be talking with you, especially here within a classroom at Juilliard, because you were one of my music theory teachers here back in the late 80s. And I remembered you as a very fun and entertaining teacher, but you really stood out to me when I found myself playing a chamber music piece of yours. And at the time, I had no idea you were a composer. To me, you were just one of my teachers. So I felt that same kind of surprise that you feel when you bump into your math teacher at the grocery store and they're in sweatpants buying ice cream and you're like, oh, wait, you exist outside of the classroom too. Is it hard to occupy both of those worlds as a composer and an educator? Do you find yourself in that Clark Kent Superman predicament where you can't be 
both things at once? Uh, good question. I haven't thought of myself as Superman, but I have to tell you there's a fish market in my neighborhood where the guy calls me Batman, the guy who works there, because my name is Bruce. And he thinks Bruce Wayne. And I know this doesn't answer the question, but he does say, hey, superhero, every time I go to buy fish there. That's kind of cool. That's about it for right. superheroes. <laughs> um, to me, composing and teaching, uh, it's kind of one thing because, uh, you know, I grew up watching Leonard Bernstein on TV, composer, conductor, teacher. And I thought, like a lot of people of my generation, that that was a normal thing to do and uh, something inspiring and exciting, which was to share your love of music through teaching and composing as an extension of your love of music and playing, performing. It's all one thing. And uh, more and more, um, teaching became uh, a way of life, not just in the classroom, just everywhere. Practically speaking, when you sit down to compose, it must take so much focused, creative energy. Do you have to ignore or somehow shut down the parts of your brain that might interfere with that creativity? You know, I think about that a lot. I just finished a book which has been published on the subject of how composers get visions and make decisions. And it's not that it switches off, but it is a different place. And there's a, there's a zone that is known uh, as the hypnagogic state. And it's before you really fall asleep. It's like if you take the expression falling asleep, it's the falling part before you hit sleep. And it also is when you wake up before you're fully awake. And it's an area where your mind is very liberated and associations happen and visions happen and they're like dreams, but you can still hold on to them. And that's the best place to get ideas. It's the, the creative sweet spot. The idea of waking up in the middle of night, you know, I would wake up with not just a feeling about a piece, very specific notes and rhythms that I would actually notate the next morning when, when I had a chance. So that sweet spot can be learned. It can be... Um, you can harness it. You can harness it. In fact, a great example of someone learning and, and thinking about it was Thomas Edison, who was aware of this when he got his best ideas. And he would sit in a comfortable armchair with two spoons, and he would be holding it over a metal plate on the floor. And he knew that when he got into the hypnagogic state, he would drop the spoon, it would hit the plate, and then he would think, what am I thinking right now? It is a little bit your suggestion of the uh, different mind. It's a mindset, actually, where you let yourself dream and think and you don't censor and you let the ideas flow. And then you switch into another kind of person who is a decision maker and a thinker who looks at the music as if someone else wrote it and you are critical of yourself. But you can't do them both at the same time. And uh, if you tried to do that or if you let yourself do that, uh, you probably will have a block. Speaking of this kind of brain state, you composed a piece called Self Comes to Mind for Yo-Yo Ma, and it's performed with video imagery alongside Yo-Yo Ma playing based on brain scans with text by neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, who directs the Brain and Creativity Institute at USC. First of all, how do you befriend a world-renowned neuroscientist, much less collaborate with them on a piece of music? How does that even come about, and how do you incorporate brain scans into a piece of art? Well, I was invited to speak at a conference on the arts and sciences. And so the people putting it together called me and said, we have 40 scientists and we don't have anyone from the arts. We're scrambling to get people from the arts because they almost forgot about that part. And so I was asked to give the very last talk out of four days of talks. And the reason was they said, well, you're going to play the piano. That'll be entertaining. And then we'll have lunch. So 
I got to hear four days of talks. And one of the talks was by Antonio Damasio, whose first book, Descartes' Error, had not yet come out, but it was about to come out. So he gave his talk. And I was amazed by many of the things he said because they really struck me as important in the arts and, and in musical thinking and in drama. So I rewrote my talk. That was the end of the four days. And then we had lunch. And so Antonio Damasio came up to me and said, you must have written that after I spoke, right? And I said, yes. He said, because you took a lot of ideas from me that you couldn't have gotten anywhere else. I said, I know. Is that okay? He said, yes. What's your science background? So I said, well, actually, these four days, that's it. You know, and we became friends and started writing back and forth. And he sent me anything he wrote that might have anything to do with music. And over the years, I started writing pieces of music that were inspired by things he wrote or said. And then eventually, after quite a few years of that, I, I said, how about we collaborate? And he was all for it. You've authored books and spent a long time contemplating the relationship between the brain, neuroscience, and creativity. So I couldn't imagine a better person to ask the following question. Where does creativity come from? Well, I think all humans are creative. The imagination is one of the things that makes us human. I mean, it makes us who we are. And, and we all have dreams. And as you said, the word harnessing, the dream, you know, that's a good word to, to think about how we get to creativity. Creativity is also problem solving. So if you have a problem to solve and you let your mind kind of wander, it's actually not focusing, it's wandering. And when your mind is free and images just occur to you, then it's possible to notice something and say, wait a minute, that is an idea. And so maybe when you were teaching me music theory in this room and I was staring out the window, I was maybe doing something productive? I think you were doing great things at that time. <laughs> My grades didn't reflect that, but yeah. It's funny. I know you haven't read this book, but it says, perhaps when you were a child in elementary school, you gazed out of the window with your pencil poised over a blank sheet of paper and the teacher called your name sharply, telling you to wake up and get to work. Yes, you do need to wake up and get to work, but your daydreaming also matters. Imagine a school where teachers encourage students to daydream, to recall their visions, and then get to work. We might see a graduating class with an unusual percentage of poets, novelists, scientists, and composers. So you're absolutely right. I was ahead of my time. Yeah. When did you first realize that you could compose? I, I can only imagine it must have felt like discovering a superpower because not everyone has the ability to do that. My first piece was written because my piano teacher was giving a musicale where all the 10-year-olds were playing one piece by Bach and one other piece that they chose. So I decided I wanted to play something no one could possibly know. So I had to write that. Um, so I wrote this little modal, lyrical, quiet, meditative piece. As and, a 10-year-old? Yeah. And um, I'm not sure what brought it about, but I wrote that little piece and I practiced it. And then I played it at the concert. And on the program, it just said Adolf. It didn't say Bruce Adolf. So when the applause happened from the parents, my father first stood up and took a bow. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then after the applause got a little bit bigger because my father was getting a nice reaction, then he said, oh, it's actually my son wrote it. And then I stood up and it was really a huge reaction because of the humor of that. And because at first they accepted the idea that it could have been written by an adult. So that was, that was a 
very bizarre moment uh, where I saw a side of my father's sense of humor that I realize I probably have too. But at the time, it was shocking and almost disturbing for a moment. But it, it didn't last too long before it was quite charming. Still, what a, what a stamp of approval for a 10-year-old. That must have made a, a tremendous impact. Well, it's one of those iconic memories. I remembered the feeling of it vividly, and that really did impress me very, very much, and it encouraged me a lot. It sounds like it was foundational in paving the way for what would become your long, multifaceted career here in New York City. But that was a while ago, right? You moved here in the 70s. Manhattan's changed a lot since then. Do you still find it a hospitable place for artists, or has the city just changed too much? Well, I think for most young people in the arts, New York City is a very difficult place to find a place to live. It's very, very expensive. The place I live in uh, now, which is a fantastic apartment, it was my wife's grandmother. I mean, it was her apartment. That's why we have it. Otherwise, we couldn't afford to live in the place we're living in. And I love this place. And when I, I realize every time someone comes to visit, they're astounded. And how did you afford this? And well, we didn't. You know, we just lucked into it. And I, I'm sorry that this New York has become like that. And I hope it changes. I mean, I hope it gets back to being a, a welcoming place for the arts. I mean, in the 70s, Every young artist could find a place on the Upper West Side. For my first apartment, I walked into a building on 71st Street. And I said, do you have vacancies? And they said, yes. And I got a one-bedroom with a kitchenette for $265 a month. And it wasn't a great place, but it was a perfect location, and it was very nice, you know. And it, the only thing wrong with it, it was not much of a kitchen. Is it true, I read, that, that you heard the gunshot that killed John Lennon? Oh, I did. I did. Really? Yeah. Well, I was living on 71st Street, right near Central Park West, and I remember hearing a gunshot, and everyone opened their windows and put their heads out looking in every direction. And it, it's, it was just right around the corner. Wow. And we didn't know till the next day what it was, but it was obvious because the report matched everything we heard, you know, and the time and the shot, and it was terrifying. Wow. You've lived in so many apartments within the city, all of which have had a very particular roommate of yours. You have to tell me about your parrot, Polly Rhythm, which is so aptly named. Well, Polly Rhythm, at the time that we're now talking, is 58 years old. He's a parrot, an Amazon yellow-fronted parrot. My family got him when I was 10, and he learned to sing opera right away. He sings when he's happy. And he sings when he likes a piece of food, and he sings when people he knows come in the room. And, and he will sometimes repeat whole phrases that he learned when he was three months old, and he's 58. Uh, most of them are Beverly Sills recordings of Strauss and Mozart. That must be incredibly disconcerting or freaky to hear your parrot sing something that maybe you have forgotten decades ago. Well, I, I have never forgotten them because he sings them every day. Oh, I see. <laughs> so it's a constant they reminder. They do tend to repeat themselves. Yeah, yeah. I hear these things all the time. <laughs> right. Have you ever performed with the parrot? The closest I've gotten to that is a kid's concert for Lincoln Center where we did only pieces about birds by composers, and there are so many pieces one can do about different kinds of birds, but at the end we showed a film of a bird singing like a person. And, of course, the kids went crazy, and it wiped out the whole show because that's all they could talk about afterwards. Right, yeah. <laughs> you work a lot with kids, and... Your character, Inspector Pulse, he breaks down music into components that are amusing, informative, and understandable. 
It reminds me of those Leonard Bernstein young people's concerts that you spoke of earlier. Was he a big inspiration for that character and for your interest in in music education in the first place? Well, well, Leonard Bernstein was an influence in the idea to be an educator, wanting to talk to kids. And but the difference is huge between uh, what it was like then and what it is now, because you can't successfully give lectures to children at concerts the way he did. I don't think the audiences are the same. In what way? Well, I don't think the parents feel that their kids should know classical music necessarily, but they will come to a show that's fun with classical music in it. And so it took me a while to come up with this idea, but Inspector Pulse, the private ear, he's the world's greatest and only private ear, by the way. Uh, He was not inspired by Bernstein particularly. The idea to educate was. But he's a mixture of Victor Borga, Maxwell Smart, and Sherlock Holmes, basically. The lost Marx brother. Yes, right. On the flip side of that, I know a lot of your music reflects your spirituality and what it is to be human. Talk to me about how your music helps you express that aspect of yourself. Right. Well, growing up, uh, our family was not at all religious in any way, although we did holidays, and I was amazed that my father knew all these prayers. And since he died when I was 11, you know, that changes things quite a bit. And my mother had no religious education. And we were all basically secular humanists, Mm -hmm. you know, and the arts were for us a kind of religion, you know, in that it was where you could express yourself, where you could... I would say commune with things that you can't put into words and that are larger than yourself. And I think music actually is more effective than theology uh, of any kind in allowing you to find the spaces in your mind and your heart. It can be more profound because it encompasses so many more things. As soon as theology is specific, it's divisive. And so music can embrace all of it. Hmm. Well, Another aspect of your compositional style is your musical wit, which has been on display on that show that you mentioned, Piano Puzzlers, for the last 20 years. Can you just explain briefly how the show works and what the process is like for you to come up with these ingenious mini compositions, these puzzles, every single episode? Well, it's I started writing Piano Puzzlers, and I didn't call them that. Uh, they were exercises for some of my theory classes at Juilliard. And basically, I would say to the students, let's take a melody and and put it in the style of Brahms and then try to see what would Stravinsky do with it or Mozart. And I found that they were very successful in terms of getting everyone's attention. And the harmonies of Brahms are much more interesting when you're trying to capture them and make somewhere over the rainbow or hey jude in the style of brahms and so i did a few of them when i first became a lecturer at lincoln center at the chamber music society and eventually uh it became a show and what it is is i will play a tune that most people know or that is very popular and in the style of some famous composer and people call in and they guess both the style of the composer and the tune so it can be as difficult as uh, a Cole Porter tune in the style of Janacek or as easy as a, as a Beatles tune in the style of Beethoven in terms of guessing what's going on. But since it's been 
over 20 years. Uh, I have to keep coming up with these things. And you kind of dug yourself your own hole. There, yeah. Right? Well, I love doing it, though, uh, because I, I will give myself assignments. I will pick a pop song or a folk song and say, I have got to put this in this style of someone. And then I'm looking at it, looking for an interval or a phrase or a gesture that reminds me of something. And if it does, that makes it easy. If it doesn't, I'll turn it into a cubist exercise, you know, and chop it up and reorganize it. And, and I try to make them not too difficult for people to guess, but difficult enough for it to be fun. Well, there's so much fun that I had to play one myself. So when the Metropolitan Opera Brass Ensemble was looking for a new piece to close out our holiday recording, we turned to you to make a puzzler that would somehow mix popular operatic melodies with holiday classics. Like, you did... Um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Carmen Toreador song. That's F what it They was. fit together quite well. Yeah, and you found like a dozen more that fit together equally as well. How do you come up with these things? I mean, even the title of the piece is very clever. Yeah, Santa and Isolde. Because there's a lot of Tristan and Isolde in it, and it's a lot of Santa. So right. Sa Santa and Isolde, which I, I like that title. <laughs> so I, went, I started looking through lots and lots of Christmas and Hanukkah songs. Again, to see what classical music would spring to mind that is opera. And then I took out opera scores, and all of a sudden it just fell into place and seemed so easy. Well, the result, like so many of your pieces, is clever, thoughtful, and hilarious. So we'll end by listening to a little bit of it now and seeing how many pairings of operatic melodies and holiday classic tunes our listeners can pick out for themselves. So, were you able to spot Frosty the Toreador? Did you deck the halls with Mimi and Rodolfo in La Boheme? And did you notice that Santa Claus is coming to town to sing Mozart's magic flute? Well, you may have to go back and take another listen or go to the episode notes for a link to the whole piece. Happy listening and happy holidays. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. 
Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly.